Okay, I'm going to make a start now. Ladies and gentlemen, and I'm delighted to see how many of you have logged in. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this SUSPIS Sustainable Business Strategy Seminar. I hope that you've downloaded the working papers. If you haven't, uh, you can find them at http colon slash slash tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C slash J-8-V capital A capital G. I'll do that again. HTTP colon slash slash tiny dot cc slash j eight v capital A capital G. That'll give you the papers that I'm working through at the moment. After this session, there'll be a recording, and there will also be a version of these notes which will be filled in. So you can be you'll be able to download that tomorrow. On the front page, you'll see what I've said is that the focus is saving money, securing revenue, building profits by adopting sustainable business strategies. And to get the most out of this training, well, print the handout so you can take notes during the session. You can do that, or as I say, you can wait for the uh, sheets to come tomorrow. Think of how to quickly implement the action points revealed during the session. I'm going to give you some action points towards the end. And set a deadline to complete at least three action points revealed during the session. Yeah, set a deadline. If you're anything like me, if you don't set a deadline, it just doesn't get done, does it? So, let's move on. I'm going to talk in general terms and fairly briefly about management science surrounding all these ideas. So what are the three parts of the triple bottom line or the three legs of the business school stool? Sorry about that. What are the three legs of the business stool? The triple bottom line, you've probably heard of this, haven't you? The economic bottom line is the most familiar. Everybody has to have a profit and loss account. Everybody has to make a profit most of the time, otherwise they're not in business. And society, well, business at least, focuses totally, almost totally, on that. Or it has done until relatively recently. If you remember Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman was the monetarist, the economist who was Mrs. Thatcher's favorite. Apparently he said... An organization's corporate social responsibility is to make as much money for its shareholders as possible. Well, there are those who would doubt that. How much money have we made? The triple bottom line looks at the wealth of the organization from three points of view, obviously. The economic wealth, the social wealth, and the environmental wealth. You could consider these as three classes of assets. Three classes of assets, all of which are fundamental to the success of the business. They're all working together. Social aspect is the employees and the community surrounding the organization. The environment is the environment in its widest sense. It's the physical environment, but it's also the people and organizations that the business interacts with, including suppliers and customers. And in many cases, it includes suppliers and customers you've never heard of, because we are in an, a global economy, and we have very long and convoluted supply chains, but no chain is stronger than its weakest link. And those links may be more remote and obscure than they ever have been in the past. So the theory of the triple bottom line is that all three legs are equally important because if one leg breaks, then, well, the stool collapses. I want to look now more specifically at sustainability. Okay, there are green and environmental aspects to it, which some people might find irrelevant. I think it's very far from irrelevant. Green and environmental issues are now coming to the forefront. They are fundamental to successful business. I'm going to, I think, demonstrate that as we go forward. Because, after all, 
it's about surviving. It's about whatever you have to do to survive. And if being sustainable helps you survive, helps you to stay in business, stay in profit, that's what we're all about. You've heard people say, if you keep doing the same things, don't be surprised if you keep getting the same results. Well, you must have. It's a cliche which appears, well, it appears all too often. I think it's one of the great lies of all time. It ranks up there with build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a pathway to your door. Tell that to the people who made the Sony Betamax. If you keep doing the same things, I think it's extremely unlikely that you get the same results. The world is changing. As the Chinese say, you can never cross the same river twice. If you keep doing the same things, you're almost certainly going to get worse and worse and worse results. It's better to be proactive rather than reactive, to be there in advance, to anticipate. Don't forget, it's the early bird that gets the worm, but the second mouse that gets the cheese. The early bird that gets the worm, but the second mouse that gets the cheese. Think about it. Is that relevant? I don't know, but it's a good line. So, let's move on. We've got the triple bottom line with its economic, social and environmental legs. Sorry, that's a stool with legs, but you know what I mean. The triple bottom line. Environmental, economic and social. Not necessarily in that order. What are the five steps to sustainable business? Now, I'm using the work of Bob Willard here, with permission. And there's a link to his website on the, on the papers which you have in front of you. Sustainable business. The first stage is pre-compliance. Pre-compliance. Well, this first step is not a sustainable position because pre-compliance means you're not complying with the rules and regulations laid down by the government and our friends in Brussels. If you don't comply, you are likely to be liable to penalties. The problem is, well, how do we know what compliance means? Aren't there dozens of new regulations every week? Well, it's not quite that bad. But um, what I want to check is uh, why... Um, if you ha bear with me just a moment, I need to check that we've got... Um, this coming through. I just want to check by playing that and I hope that we'll be able to hear because otherwise nobody's hearing anything at all. Um, and oh, perhaps I've muted my... Ah, yeah, sorry about that. I'd muted my speakers and I was wondering to myself why I wasn't hearing anything and I was fearing that you weren't hearing anything either. But um, no such problem. Sorry about that. Let's go back. Pre-compliance. The first step is not a sustainable position. Pre-compliance. Pre-compliance means you're not complying with the rules and regulations laid down by government and our friends in Brussels. If you don't comply, you're likely to be liable to penalties. But how do we know what compliance means? Aren't there dozens of new regulations every week? Well, it's not quite that bad. But your best starting point is www.netregs.org. Netregs.org. That's N-E-T-R-E-G-S dot org. That's a website which is run by the Environment Agency and it lists all the requirements by type of industry so you can go there and find out if there's something you need to be doing. And that'll bring you to the next stage. Stage number two, which is compliance. Compliance means you've checked up, you know what you should be doing, and you're doing it. No problem. But some people go a stage further and, unsurprisingly,
surprisingly, stage three is called beyond compliance. Stage three is taking steps to do more than is required by the regulations. Well, why would anyone do that? Regulations are changing all the time, so it can make sense to keep ahead. It's also good PR. There's no regulation, for example, that says you can't give away plastic bags. Not in this country, anyway, although there is a regulation in Ireland. But the supermarkets are cutting back on them because it's what customers want. There's no law that says power stations have to trap all the carbon dioxide they produce. Well, there's no technology at the moment. But you can be sure that the first operator to install the technology when it comes will make a lot of fuss about it. And also, once it happens, all the others will have to do it as well. There'll be regulations. If it's possible, they'll regulate for it. And quite apart from that, heavy emitters of CO2 are financially penalised through the emissions trading scheme, so carbon capture makes sense, if it ever actually makes technical sense, but that's another issue. The point is that these things make business sense, make business sense to do something. There is a next stage. There are two more stages, four and five. Integrated strategy at number four and purpose and passion at number five. Organizations with integrated strategy look at the bigger picture. They want to be sustainable for all the right business reasons. For example, if you listen to my recent podcast, and you can find my podcasts at all the W's susbiz.biz, that's S-U-S-B-I-Z dot B-I-Z, if you listen to my podcast with Julia Walker-Palin from Asda, he makes it quite clear that the things that company does save them costs and they allow them to push down prices for their customers. It's staying in business, it's staying in profit, and also helping the customers. They're doing it for business reasons. That's what it's about. In the next section, I'm going to talk specifically about how you can trim your costs and boost your revenues by implementing your sustainable business strategy. Uh, but before I do that, let's look at stage five, which is called purpose and passion. Now, the sort of organization at stage five is typically founded by someone who's totally committed to sustainability and to protecting the planet. Again, I've got a podcast at susbiz.biz with Martin Warner from The City Secret. He has set up a, a software company in the Yorkshire Dales. He set it up on sustainable and environmentally responsible principles. He's located it away from the city centres to avoid commuting, to improve the quality of life, and to reduce his organisation's impact on the planet. So that's a stage five organisation. These people build their businesses in a totally environmentally responsible way, while the stage four organisations are adapting existing businesses to be environmental. It's the same result, but it's a different approach. At levels four and five, sustainable business is the way these organizations do business. So what actually is sustainability? Here are three definitions. Now, I just want to take a second, if I may. Okay. I've lost my place. Sorry about that. Yes. Sustainability. At levels four and five, sustainable business, yeah, I've done that. What is sustainability? Sustainable development is meeting the needs of the present generation 
without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. That's the Brunton Commission. Sustainability is the possibility that human and other forms of life on Earth will flourish forever. That's the MIT definition. Let's just revisit that. Sustainability is the possibility that human and other forms of life on Earth will flourish forever. So lack of sustainability presumably is the possibility that human and other forms of life on Earth will disappear. And there are a number of people who say that if we don't be sustainable, then that is what's going to happen. Or the final definition is that sustainability is enough for all forever. Is this a business issue? Well, we've already seen that there are government regulations which oblige every business to be sustainable. Even in the present economic climate, there's still consumer pressure to be green. New research from the Carbon Trust Standard shows that consumers still want to buy green despite the current economic climate, with 62% of consumers saying environmental concerns influence their purchasing decisions the same as a year ago, and just over a quarter saying that they influence them even more than in 2008. This is very recent research. It was published uh, last month. Um, no, I think the beginning of this month, March 2009. The research shows that a business's green credentials have a significant impact on consumer buying choices. Now, that must be important. A business's green credentials have a significant impact on consumer buying choices. Two-thirds, 66% of consumers, say it's important to buy from environmentally responsible companies, with one in seven, 14%, saying that they voted with their feet by deciding not to buy from a company based on their environmental reputation, and almost a quarter based on a company's ethical reputation. So how can all this pressure be good for the bottom line? Let's get into some numbers. Let's look at the um, let's look at the grid. How much can sustainability save your business? This is really all about sensitivity analysis, and I'm sure you've all seen the models. You take 10% off your direct costs, 10% off your overheads, increase your prices by 1%, grow your revenue by 5%, and so on and so on, and suddenly your net profit goes up by something crazy. It's nothing new or revolutionary, but have you done that sort of exercise recently? There's lots of ways approaching the exercise, but let's look at it from a sustainability angle. After all, it doesn't matter where you get your improvements from, does it? as long as you get a better bottom line. I have to say that this grid is a model. Your organization will be different. Let's start with staff costs. The exact proportion in relation to turnover all depends on the sort of business you run. If you're in a people business and you don't manufacture or sell any products, then staff costs are likely to be the major element of your business costs. So, for this example, we'll assume 70%. We'll put 70% in that cell up there, which is called percentage of turnover. 70% goes in there. That's because this is a staff business. It doesn't buy and sell or make any sort of goods. Well, will motivated staff save you money? I've mentioned Bob Willard, Canadian expert on sustainability. He's done an analysis. He finds that if you can change staff attitudes, the average organization can increase its profits by at least 38% over five years. If you have positive staff attitudes, you're likely to see better productivity. You're more likely to retain staff. Remember, 
consumer attitudes, according to the Carbon Trust, consumer attitudes are very pro-green, and consumers are employees. So, QED. You're more likely to retain staff. Um, yeah, and a recent study found that as many as two-thirds of today's workers are either actively looking for new jobs or are merely going through the motions at their current jobs. While they still show up for work each day, in the ways that count, many have already left. If your staff believe in corporate policies and can identify with them, they'll be more productive. You'll be more likely to retain your staff. You may find people seek to work for your organisation because of its reputation. So when you need to recruit, it'll cost you less. If everyone in the organisation is motivated, the other actions you take will be more effective because they'll be committed to them and they'll carry them out. Your customers will be attracted to your business by the attitude of your motivated staff. So how do we put figures on this? Well, you could wet your finger and stick it in the air, of course. It's, it's very, very difficult to be prescriptive. But let's make some assumptions. Let's look at the, let's look at the sensitivity and let's see whether small changes can have big effects. Let's assume we'll save 1% on the costs on recruitment, that we'll save 1% by retaining staff, not having to go out and recruit new staff, and that we'll improve productivity by 5% because they'll enjoy what they're doing, they'll feel more committed, and they'll do a better job. So I've put those figures up in the graph, in the grid at the top. So 1% for recruitment, 1% for retention, 5% for productivity. That's in the potential saving column. At the top there, uh, adds up to 7%. If staff costs are 70% of turnover, then the net saving as a percentage of turnover is 4.9%. That's 7% of 70%, or 70% of 7%. Okay, 4.9%. Traditionally, of course, people say, oh, sustainability, it's about turning the lights off, turning the computers off, and making sure there are no tap stripping. That's the lower part of the grid. Energy and resources, materials, water, waste. Now, I've wet my finger again, and I've said, for the sake of this, um, this hypothetical business, energy and resources is 20% of turnover. In energy and resources, I've put the cost of travel. Materials, I've said 3%. If you've got a people business, your materials are probably stationary, printer cartridges, things like that. Water, maybe 1%. Waste, maybe 1%. Not a great deal. Now, there's an organization called NWorks, which operates in the Northwest, helping businesses to be more environmentally responsible. And they've calculated, after working with nearly 2,500 SMEs, that they've been able to achieve savings, 8% cost savings on energy, 2% cost savings on materials, 13% cost savings on water, and 50% cost savings on waste. That's the average across their 2,500 SMEs. So let's put those figures up in the potential saving grid. 8% for energy, 2% for materials, 13% for water, 50% for waste. 8% of 20% gives a net saving of 1.6% of revenue. 2% of 3% gives 0.06%, not much. 
13% of 1% gets 0.13%, not much. 50% of 1% gives half a percent, again, not much. But if they all add up together, you get 2.29%. That's in addition to the 4.9% we had above. Let's go down and look at the next grid. Well, before we get there, I just want to comment that all these things are savings. Now, one thing that NWORK found was that 70% of the savings were achieved by behavior change. I'll repeat that. 70% of the savings were achieved by behavior change. In other words, they were achieved with little or no cost. Some things require investment, but the Carbon Trust in particular will provide soft loans or even grants for putting in things which are more economical, which have a lower carbon footprint and so on. But you can do an awful lot without actually investing any money at all. It's all profit. Why miss out? Now, of course, you can change some things overnight. You can certainly put in new light bulbs and introduce a rule to switch off computers at the end of the day. But changing attitudes takes longer, and there's a lot more to it than that. But changing attitudes means the benefits can be more durable and more far-reaching. Start changing now, and you'll be best placed when the upturn comes. If you wait until the upturn comes, you'll find you've got so much else going on that it won't get done. An attitude change is something which will cost you a relatively small amount to implement. Let's go back to the figures. How much can sustainability make for your business? Let's look at the lower grid now, which is headed up. How much can sustainability make for your business? I'm assuming this is a very small business. The revenue is 100. Of that, we've said we spend 70%, 70 on staff. Resources, which is energy and travel and so on, is 20%. The other bits and pieces is 5%. That leaves us with a profit of 5%. If we can improve our revenue, let's say we can improve our revenue by 5%. How would we do that? Put our prices up. In the present environment, no, probably not. But you might be able to put your turnover up. You might be able to put your turnover up because you've got a green reputation, you've got a responsible reputation, organizations want to deal with you. Or, to put it another way, if you're dealing with the public sector, they're going to come, if they're going to buy from you, and ask whether you've got an environmental policy. And if your competitors have not got an environmental policy, you're going to get the business because they're not allowed to deal with people who are not environmentally responsible. So your turnover might go up. And it's not just the public sector. Well, it depends who you deal with. But more and more people, as the Carbon Trust has shown, are seeing green issues as important. Green issues as important in business as well as uh, at the consumer level. So let's get your revenue up. If your revenue goes up by 5%, the net improvement is £5. You've got a turnover of £100, you've increased it by 5%, you've got another £5. Your staff cost you 70 Um You're saving 7% on that. But So 7 times 70 is £4.90. That's from the previous grid. So you've saved £4.90. That's £4.90, which has gone through the bottom line, together with the five pounds. Resources, you're saving 8% on resources. That 8% is what NWORKs have found. So that's another one pound 60. 
And the other, well, you take the average of the remaining things in the top grid, it works out at a 13.8% improvement on 5% of your, your turnover, uh, 69p. You add them all together, you've got a net improvement of £12.19. Now, your previous profit was £5. You've added another £12.19 to it. Um, in fact, you've added 243.8%, which is quite a lot. So you go back and you look at the figures and you look and see what's achievable. You look and see how they can affect your business. But the combination of relatively small changes, beneficial changes, can actually add up to quite a dramatic effect on the bottom line. And don't forget, small changes the wrong way around can also have a dramatic effect on the bottom line. We need to protect our bottom line. It's about staying in business and staying in profit. So what I recommend is you fill in this grid for yourself. Your figures and your proportions will all be different. Of course, you've got your own business. You're almost certainly going to have to do some homework before you know the proportions, the current consumption, the potential savings. If you're manufacturing and or selling a product, you'll need to build that into your calculations. That will make it fundamentally different. Because if, for example, you increase your revenue, if you increase your prices, then that will drop straight into the bottom line. But if you increase your volume, the increased revenue will not drop into the bottom line because you've got to actually pay for the things you're selling. So all that's got to be taken into account. But there's a lot to be done on the cost front. You can't control your costs unless you measure them. It's amazing how many major companies still don't know what they're spending on energy or water or other basic overhead. Not in detail, anyway. In many cases, they have a meter in the corner of an enormous building, and they know what the total consumption is, but that's all. And um, it, it, it'll vary, as I said, for every company. Every business model is different. And you might say, well, we're in a tenanted building and the landlord's got complete control over the lighting and the heating. There's nothing we can do. What about power? What about your uh, computers? Um, and do you turn them off at night? Do you control all these things? What about... Um, Sorry, I lost my place again. Right. Are your computers left on all night? Is your photocopier on standby all night? Is your coffee machine on standby all night? All weekend? Every bank holiday? Yeah, coffee machines, they use uh, energy. If you switch them off, aren't you going to save some money? Well, you might say, oh, well, it's not very much. Well, perhaps it's not very much, but it's probably 30% more than it was this time last year. Anyway, how do you know it's not very much? Have you measured it? Do you use the same amount of electricity at night when no one's there as you do during the day? Some organisations have checked up and been horrified by the results. They found that, yes, they do use exactly the same amount of energy at night as they do during the day. Why? There's nobody there. In fact, you can still walk up and down high streets. I think that some of the retailers are the worst offenders. I can understand you want some lights on downstairs for security purposes, but why on earth do they have the full lights on? The full lights on on the first and second and third floors. Oh, they're restocking? Really? At 10 o'clock on a Friday night? I wonder. I wonder. 
Now, you and your colleagues probably spend quite a lot on travel if we're in this theoretical people business that I've been talking about, visiting clients, maybe visiting associates or suppliers and so on. If you drive, the sort of car you drive determines your costs, obviously. Yeah, I know there's the prestige thing, and I'd like a Range Rover too, but fuel costs certainly began to bite last year when oil went up to $147 a barrel. And it's all converted into CO2, carbon footprints. You know, I haven't got into the whole of that aspect of this at the moment, but carbon footprints are really very serious. But even if you don't want to believe that, oil's expensive. And if you use more of it, it's going to cost you more. Um, oil went up to $147 a barrel last year. You can see this on, on the chart. In July 2008, a barrel of oil cost, it cost $147. You can fill that in. Uh, and it came down in January, as you may have noticed, it came down to $36. And where is it now? Well, interestingly, it's bounced back up. It's um, and it's bounced down again. Over the last week, it's been hovering between forty-eight and fifty-two dollars a barrel. So let's say that today it costs fifty dollars a barrel. Well, all right. So it's at about a third of what it was at its peak. But let's look at this in sterling terms, because as far as the UK is concerned, not only has the oil price moved, but that the pound-dollar rate has moved. In July 2008, a barrel of oil cost £74. In January 2009, it cost £24.50. Today, it's costing about £35. So it's rather about half what it was costing. Not a third, it's up to a half of what it was costing at the peak in the summer. As I say, it's hovering around 48 to 52. It was 52 last Friday. It was 48 and a bit today, which it's been rising quite steadily since the end of January. This is a blip. I don't know which way it's going to go. But what do you think in the long term? Up? It's a no-brainer, really, isn't it? Now, before we go on, I would like to make the point that this session will give you pointers and general principles. But each of your organizations is different, and with, yeah, we've got a lot of people on tonight, with nearly 100 people on this call, it's impossible to have a discussion and to deal with each person's, with each, each person's individual um, issues. Um, right, now, oh, just a moment, what am I doing here? Uh, I haven't, uh, I'm just clicking on the questions that people are putting in. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for all these. I'm going to have a problem, I think, in responding during the session, but I will certainly come back and um, respond to you by email. Make sure you put an email address in there so I can uh, let you know, so I can respond. Right. Just before we go on, as I was saying, each of your 100 people, it's impossible to have a discussion. So I'm going to run a traditional face-to-face -face workshop in May or probably early June in the Leeds area. Um, I'll give you more details later on, but I just wanted to tell you that there's A, a money-back guarantee, and B, you choose to pay what you think it's worth. And you can select any price between £2,000 per delegate yeah, and £50. If you choose £50, you'll get exactly the same material. 
So why would you pick a high price? Well, if you choose to pay £2,000, I'll come to you. You pick the date. You bring in as many people from your organization as you like to make a working group. I'll spend a day's preparation, and the whole workshop will be based exclusively on your business. If you pay £50, I'm not going to guarantee an upper limit. There may be 100 people there. I will do everything I can to concentrate on your individual problems. But, of course, the bigger the group, the less time I'm going to be able to spend with you personally. When you go and log on to register for this seminar, this workshop, uh, it's not up yet, but I'll send you the details in due course. But you'll find there's a range of prices. 2000 is the top, whack, 50 is the bottom. For each level in between, there's a maximum number of people who will be allowed to attend. So the more you pay, the less people you'll be sharing this event with and the closer attention you'll get. Okay, let's move on. Who are the key players who ensure that sustainable businesses succeed? Group one, group two, group three. Well, staff. We've already agreed that we must change attitudes to be able to get the best out of our environmental policies. That's not just cost-saving, that's projecting the sustainable, green, environmentally responsible, call it what you will, image. Because that's important with group number two, our customers. Number one is staff, number two is our customers. Actually, it's not just our customers, it's the public at large. Customers may praise us for being responsible and being green, but it's not only customers who will attack us if we do things they don't approve of or if we don't do things that they think we should. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of, basically, of PR and public opinion. We don't want to give our competitors the opportunity to criticize us. Group three is suppliers. We cannot be sustainable if we rely on suppliers who are not sustainable themselves. They may be on the other side of the world or across the street, but we need to be sure that they're sustainable, not only from the green point of view, but from the practical, able-to-supply point of view. You may have heard of the Carbon Disclosure Project, set up by the world's largest investors. Every year, it asks the world's largest companies to report on how sustainable and secure they are. And these companies have set up the supply chain initiative to make sure that their suppliers are green and sustainable. After all, if you're M&S, you don't want to find out that one of your suppliers is polluting rivers and another is chopping down tropical forests. And you certainly don't want consumer organizations or television reporters to find that out. So you've got to make sure of the integrity of your supply chain. You don't want to have a supplier that's based in a floodplain and has already suffered two inundations in the last three years. You want security of supply. So if yours is a small organization, your major customers may come along asking about your sustainability. They may make it a condition of doing business with you that you report to them on what you are doing to be sustainable. And if you're a large organization, you should be checking up on your suppliers because investigative journalists may well be doing so otherwise. So it's training. It's awareness. It's PR. It's also about quantifying risks and planning. That's what the COBRA matrix on the next page is for. So this is the COBRA matrix. Balancing risk against impact. COBRA is the control of business risk and action. This matrix is one that I've been using for 
leadership groups earlier, well, since the beginning of this year. And I asked the question, where would you place these events on the Cobra Matrix given a 12-month perspective? The first one is the US dollar devalued against the euro, yen, and all major currencies. In other words, collapse of US dollar. Interestingly, uh, people saw this as being absolutely crucial. It would be very serious if it happened, but they didn't rate it particularly highly. What a number of people actually said was that they thought the euro would collapse well within the next five years and disappear off the face of the earth. I don't think that events since January have borne that out. And then the next one is oil at $200 a barrel. How important is it? How likely is it? I'll send you a completed matrix with the, um, the download completed version of these notes. And you'll see what people thought. They thought that oil at $200 a barrel was going to be quite important to their businesses. But they didn't think that it was uh, particularly likely. It'll happen, maybe not within 12 months. Sudden loss of electricity to your business lasting more than four hours. We are in an economic situation where economic activity has declined. And that means the demand for electricity has declined. And I think there may be an awful lot of power companies that are heaving sighs of relief because our infrastructure both in terms of electricity generation and electricity distribution is aged and running to a large extent to capacity we need to replace our power stations and the government has dragged its feet in deciding what to do about it they finally said that they're going to build nuclear power stations but it'll take 10 years even if they short circuit the planning um, regulations. It will take 10 years to get a new nuclear power station in commission. And even then, that's only a medium-term solution because the world's supply of uranium is finite. Well, we could build coal-fired power stations with carbon capture. But even Sir Nicholas Stern, or Lord Stern as he is now the economist, has said that we can't possibly do that because it will negate all the carbon savings of many organisations for many years. Because although they say that the proposed power station down at Kings North is carbon capture ready, the truth is that nobody's actually successfully implemented carbon capture on an industrial scale yet. So we'll be pouring out carbon dioxide for years until somebody comes up with a technique which will allow it to be captured. And there are other issues. But the point is that in the short term, if demand is kept low, then the chances of power cuts is relatively small. But as demand creeps up, we may well see power cuts. And have you considered what you could do if suddenly electricity was cut off like that and went out for four hours? Have you got an uninterruptible power supply? At least something that will give you 15 minutes to close down your computers in a managed way, in a controlled fashion, so you don't lose all your data or corrupt your hard disks and so on. Think hard, and it costs about 70 quid to get an uninterruptible power supply for one computer. If you've got an industrial plant, uh, well, you've got to work out what you need. You may need to have standby backup generators. Um, if you can get the oil for them. Base rate at 0%. Hmm, it was a lot more than that in January. It's at 0.5 now. It's not going to go down to, to zero. VAT to stay at 15% indefinitely. Corporation tax abolished. 
flood closes motorway for two weeks? Well, a flood did close the M1 um, some month, just over a year ago because it filled up a dam which looked as though it was not particularly secure. Well, do you get any supplies, any customers coming up the M1? Do you drive down the M1 to see people, to deliver your goods and services? The events I've chosen on this sheet are the ones I've been using, as I said, with workshop groups since the start of the year. It's interesting to see how things are changing and how expectations are changing. As I go to each different group, they come up with different ideas. The things on this matrix are all very general events, but your own organization will have specific issues which are important to success, to sustainability and survival. So choose about eight issues and plot them on the chart. Think very hard. Remember, 12 months ago, we would have said that nationalization of the banks would be extremely important, but unlikely to the point of impossibility. In fact, 12 months ago, we wouldn't even have had nationalization of the banks on the radar. So think first of what's important and dare to think the unthinkable. That's a cliche, isn't it? But do think the unthinkable. Weigh the consequences of it happening. Look for the things which are fundamental, which are crucial, which are extremely important to the survival and success of your business. And then decide how likely they are. And decide how much it's worth spending to be prepared for these things. And decide how much, it's, how much you will lose if you're not prepared. Decide whether your competitors are preparing for these things or not. Well, as I said earlier on, we can't work together on a detailed strategy for your organization, for your own organization, via a public teleseminar because there's just too many of us. But I hope we can work together in the future. And if you have any questions, please do either use the response form on the web page in front of you or you can send me an email. That's mail at anthony-day.com and I will respond as quickly as I can. I'm actually going up to the Low Carbon Best Practice, Low Carbon Best Practice Exchange in Newcastle uh, later this week on the 2nd of April. May see you there. Uh, that might delay my dealing with your emails, but I will come back to you by the end of the week. And remember, tomorrow there will be a recording of this session available, and um, tomorrow or shortly afterwards, the notes with um, my comments and uh, with the figures and so on filled in will also be available for you to download. So what would I say about sustainability? It's not just about energy. It's not just about oil. It's not just about waste. It's about an attitude of mind. And it's about staying in business and staying in profit. And whether you're a skeptic or, 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 or not, we all agree that staying in business and staying in profit, well, that's what we want to do. I hope this has been useful. If it has, I hope you'll take three actions as a result of what you've learned. Here are my three. If you think this teleseminar is valuable, please tell your colleagues and contacts that I'll be running it again, and it's still free, on the 21st of April. I'll send you details. In fact, on the form which you'll download with the, the completed form, you'll find the details there. Second point, if you've got ideas and suggestions, thank you for those of you who've already put things up uh, via the, the web page for this uh, teleseminar. But if you've got anything else, please let me have your feedback uh, 
via email, mail at anthony-day.com. The third thing, a practical thing, is go to www.netregs.org. That's the Environmental Agency site which I mentioned. Find out what your organization needs to do to meet the regulations to be compliant. What else? Well, do you know what your electricity consumption is? Check your electricity consumption. Then you're on the first step to doing something about it. Set up a strategy team? Well, informally at least. Get a group of people together and talk about the key issues which are going to affect your business. There's a lot to do. And there's a lot to be gained as well. Because we are going to be the businesses which stay in business, stay in profit. We are going to be the businesses which come out of this recession. Yes, I've used the word. We come out of the recession as the strongest survivors. And we are the companies which will clean up as the economy rebounds. So, if you'd like to talk about your specific business, give me a call. 07803-616-877 and sign up for my face-to-face workshop. I've told you about the deal. Money-back guarantee. You choose the price. £2,000, your date, your venue, my attention for two days. £50, it'll be a big group. It'll be a hard, intensive day. But I look forward to seeing you. So at this point, I'm going to say thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for your time in listening to my podcast. I hope you found it valuable. I wish you all the very best. Until next time, this is Anthony Day. It's been a pleasure.